Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Siobhan McCurgy, the host of New Books and Law. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Melvin Ely about his 2004 work, Israel on the Appomattox, a Southern Experiment in Black Freedom from the 1790s through the Civil War. Professor Ely is the William R. Kennan Jr. Professor of Humanities at the College of William & Mary. Professor Ely, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I wonder if you'd begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself where you were born, where you went to school, and how you became attracted to the history of African Americans and the South. Well, where and when I was born has everything to do with why I'm attracted to that history. I was born in Richmond, Virginia, and grew up there in the 50s and 60s, which is the exact period during which uh, legally mandated segregation was starting to break down. So I was I was born into a quite rigidly segregated society uh, as a white uh, Southerner. And very gradually over time, as I say, that started to break down. Most uh, interestingly for me in that the public schools I went to were slowly desegregated. And by the time I was in high school, I was was attending classes with uh, and participating in activities with black students. And it uh, shocked me that uh, for all those years, the entire legal and social system had been geared towards separating me from those people. Some of the people I most wanted to be with, uh, the system had conspired to keep me away from. So at first I was baffled by that and ultimately outraged by it. And I wanted to understand how that came to be. And that's what impelled me into the uh, history of the South and of of black Americans. Okay. Could you tell me uh, how then you came to write Israel on the Appomattox? I happened as uh, an adult to look back at the seventh grade Virginia history textbook that I had, uh, had studied back in uh, what's now called middle school. And I saw in there, one sentence to the effect that a certain planter named Richard Randolph had left a will freeing his slaves and providing land for them uh, to settle on, which would be their own, in uh, Prince Edward County, Virginia. It was one sentence with no elaboration whatever. But coming back to that as an adult, I thought that was extremely intriguing because I knew that uh, to 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 set one's slaves free was unusual but not unheard of. To set them free and to give them the wherewithal to uh, uh, attempt to, to create a meaningful independent existence seemed uh, unusual to the point almost of uniqueness. So in the fullness of time, I decided to try to investigate what had happened to that community, uh, whether it had uh, been uh, sort of asphyxiated by the the pressure of white racism that must have surrounded it, whether somehow people had made a go of that community. It turned out that Prince Edward County, Virginia, has a a, a 
an astoundingly full uh, trove of uh, records from the period before the Civil War. And that's what enabled me to do the book, which became ultimately not only about the one community that was created by this uh, emancipation of slaves, but by the uh, but about the the entire free black community of that that county, that part of Virginia, and how free blacks and whites interacted. Great. Uh, could you start off by describing the view from Israel Hill and tell us a little more about how it was founded and introduce us to some of the members of the community? Israel Hill. Uh, there is, in fact, a view from there because it is it is a hill. It's in the rolling countryside of uh, central Virginia. And uh, the community was founded around Christmas time of 1810 because uh, this wealthy planter, Richard Randolph, had, in fact, left a will in which he expressed the hope that his uh, his slaves would be emancipated and uh, that they would receive a part of his plantation to settle on. That for reasons we can talk about shortly, it took 14 years for his widow actually to bring that about, but she did in fact ultimately free about 95 uh, Afro-Virginians and uh, parcel out 350 acres of land among them. So in 1810, you would have looked out from Israel Hill and you would have seen I don't know, maybe on a on a clear day from the right spot, perhaps you would have seen a little a little piece of the Appomattox River, which uh, flows through there, hence the subtitle of my uh, book. But it's a place where where freed uh, African-Americans had small farms ranging from 25 to 50 acres on which they made part of their living. But they also became many of them uh, entrepreneurs in the larger community. And we can talk about that also. They became over time, reasonably important players in the economy of of Prince Edward County, and their descendants are there in the neighborhood to this day, some of whom are personal acquaintances of mine now. Very interesting. Um, could you tell us uh, about some of the widespread economic and legal dealings between Israelites and white people? Yes, you, you've asked me to speak of some uh, individuals who uh, – outstanding figures on Israel Hill. Let me mention a couple. One who was the the foremost and probably first settler there was a man named Hercules White, a wonderfully poetic name, even though it was pronounced at the time Hercules. Hercules White was uh, apparently a physically uh, powerful person, but certainly in terms of skills and and, uh, intellect and drive, he was quite extraordinary. He was a a farmer, uh, a cooper, a slaughterer of hogs, a, a, a wagoner, uh, a person who did all kinds of, of jobs and was very acquisitive. I mean, he was about uh, earning money and, and making a meaningfully independent life in that environment. Now, he lived only uh, till about, I think it was 1812, So, and the, the community was – essentially founded, uh, called Israel Hill, was essentially founded in 1810, as I said. So uh, this is not a community that has sort of a, 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 a paternal uh, leading uh, overlord uh, figure. Some people would like to think, well, there was, there was, there was one outstanding fellow who lived there and everybody else sort of uh, was carried along in his wake. In fact, he died early on and his... Uh, uh, Children and grandchildren and their neighbors 
really fended for themselves, and some of them became entrepreneurs. By the time of the Civil War, they had bought and sold something like, uh, well, more than a dozen uh, lots in the neighboring town, which is now called Farmville. They had built buildings on some of them. One of one of these people, Philip White, had uh, bought one lot, built on it, and resold it at a 500% profit. So these were very enterprising people, some of them anyway. Uh, some of them went into the, the boating business. Now, here I have to explain that in those days, the roads were poor, so a cargo was carried up and down the Appomattox River on a type of boat called a bateau. It's about 50 feet long and 6 feet wide put five to seven tons of cargo on it and floated in, in 20 inches of water. It would be pulled along by two uh, two uh, boatmen, and then there'd be a captain or tillerman in the, in the rear. That was the form of commerce that predominated. And by 1850, something like 40% of the cargo that came in and out of, of Farmville, Virginia, was uh, was brought in on boats that were not only operated by free blacks, but owned by free blacks. So you have the central... One of the central industries of that town was largely in the hands of black people by 1850 and probably before that. So this is what I mean when I say that this was a community to a great extent of of very enterprising people. And, of course, none of this could happen without all kinds of. Uh, all kinds of interactions with whites. So whites and blacks, whites and free blacks would partner up to run boats up and down the river. They would invest together in uh, maybe a land or building or a shipment of cargo or whatever. So there's economic interaction. There's religious interaction. The first uh, Baptist church in Farmville was founded by a white pastor, but the two, the two original members were two black uh, men from Israel Hill, promptly joined by some two dozen local whites who apparently found it not unusual or off-putting to join a church, the charter members of whom were black. So the uh, the greatest surprise for me, I think, was the the types of interactions, the extent of interactions between whites and free blacks. Uh, I found a, a, a white family and a free black family hitching up wagons together and moving west to Kentucky, settling down together in the in the same town. Uh, even even uh, men of color and, and white women. Uh, establishing marital relations uh, relationships so they couldn't really legalize that in the 19th century i found six or seven cases of that where people stayed together for life they raised children grandchildren uh now this all starts to sound pretty idyllic and wonderful but i have to interject here that i know about these uh, most of these marriages because some white person or people objected to them and they they brought charges for so-called fornication against these couples. So there are always white people uh, opposing gains for, for freed African-Americans, but they didn't usually predominate, and that's why these interracial couples stayed together. Because somebody tried to break them up, but this, the system in the end did not break them up and did not prefer or did not vindicate the charges against them. Could you tell us more specifically about some of the experiences free blacks had with the court system? Yeah, I, I should say, first of all, that most people in the general public are, who, who hear me talk or read the book are surprised that, that there were any African-Americans in the South before the Civil War who were free. But the fact is, in, in Virginia, by the, by the 1850s, one out of nine uh, blacks in the state was 
a free person. Now, that's a decided minority, but that's that's fairly many people. I mean, that's thousands and thousands of people. Your specific question, though, run that by me again, because I want to make sure that I'm, I'm being responsive. Uh, just some of the experiences free blacks had with the court system. Yeah, the court system. Good. Uh, this was a society. Let's start off by stipulating the following. This was a society in which these uh, blacks who were set free couldn't vote. They couldn't serve on juries. They couldn't testify in court against a white defendant. Some In some years, they had to pay special taxes that white people didn't have to pay. They had to carry documents that could... Uh, prove that they were free, they were, let's say, third-class citizens in the society, but they did have some crucial rights. One was that they were the owners of their own persons, and assuming their uh, family members were free, the family members couldn't be bought and sold away from them, as was often done with enslaved families. They had the right, the free blacks did, to buy, to hold property, to bequeath property, just the same as white people did. And I'm embarrassed to admit as a historian of the Old South that until I did this research, I didn't understand that while free, while blacks couldn't testify against a white defendant, they could file civil suits against white people or black, and uh, the suits would be uh, adjudicated the same way as any other suit. Not only could they file suit, the free blacks, they did file suit. And a surprising percentage of the time, the free blacks uh, uh, won their lawsuits, a minority of the time. But even even white uh, uh, litigants won their cases maybe a third of the time, blacks a quarter to a third of the time. So I was quite surprised to find uh, monetary damages being awarded to, uh, to, uh, white, uh, to black complainants against white people. The other uh, experience in the court, in the court system that was very important has to do with this prohibition against black testimony against white defendants. If you think about it, that is a really crippling uh, prohibition because what it means is that if, let's suppose a white uh, person comes up to a free black uh, on a road and just decides to, to, to beat him up or take a, take a club upside his head, the black uh, victim has no recourse in the criminal courts, unless there happens to be a white witness who happens to be willing to testify to the effect of what happened. But what free blacks discovered is that what they couldn't necessarily do in the criminal courts, they could try to do in the civil courts. So they would file suits for assault in, uh, on the civil side against uh, white assailants. And uh, in, in, more than the, uh, the, the, the sort of odd and anomalous case, they, they uh, won judgments against whites, won monetary judgments against white assailants. So this is not a perfect check on white abuse by any means, but it, it, is, it is an inroad that free blacks could make against an unjust system. The other important part of this, in my mind, is, is the way free blacks carried themselves. The, the old idea really up until the late 20th century was that free blacks were so oppressed that they were almost in the same position as enslaved people. The impression that I get is that free blacks weren't carrying themselves. Many of them were not carrying themselves as if they felt 
that their situation was tantamount to slavery. They were carrying themselves as free people who have rights, and they were making demands on the system, going to court and expecting to be heard. And one of the reasons they were doing that was because they, they went to court and they, they were heard more often than we think. Uh, and can you tell us a little bit why this unjust legal system could deal justly with free black defendants. Um, You talk a little bit in your book about how despotic power entitles a ruler to choose justice over cruelty if he wishes. Yeah, that's a a paradox that I hadn't thought about much until I I did this work. Uh, And uh, just not to, not to belabor the quotation, but it, it bears, it bears repeating that if, if I have absolute power over you, I can, choose to abuse you mercilessly and indiscriminately, or I can choose to uh, deal with you one day this way and uh, tomorrow another way. I can decide to elevate you and give you privileges. And each and every one of these decisions that I make reiterates and, and ratifies my power. I mean, the power, the power to bestow beneficence on you is still power. Now, that's the the premise. The concrete explanation I would give is that uh, unlike certain other historians who wrote before I did, I don't think that the typical white person in the Old South, and specifically in Virginia, which is what I write about, was worried about free blacks most of the time. There were enough enough free blacks to... Uh, constitute a phenomenon that's worth investigating, but not enough of them to pose a physical threat. And if you think about it, uh, a freed African-American had every reason in the world not to buck the system, not to create trouble, precisely to the extent that their freedom was imperfect and maybe uh, fragile. To that very extent, they've got an incentive not to make trouble. Now, where I think some historians are misled is that they read the uh, the white propaganda at the time. They read newspapers. They read uh, the laws that were passed against free blacks, which which are horrible. I mean, d- disgusting. The racial rhetoric is is repulsive that was used at the time. But what I find is that that whites had an interesting way of compartmentalizing. When they thought of the free black issue as an issue, many of them, uh, if you had asked them, if you could have done a Gallup poll, would have said, well, you know, it would be better if we didn't have any free blacks. It would be better if they all moved to Africa. But then you'd you'd ask them about the specific free blacks they dealt with on a day-to-day basis, and they'd say, oh, well, you know, Sam White, he's he's a good guy. He's honest. He's... he's, he's, uh, more industrious and, and, and smarter than a lot of these poor whites we've got around here. So you get two kinds of historical evidence. One is the evidence of what white people thought about blacks as an anonymous mass. And the other is, uh, is how they dealt with blacks on an individual basis. Now, some of these whites were, were pluperfect bastards on an individual basis. This is a society in which one of the interesting stories is that not all white people thought and behaved alike. Almost all white people were okay with slavery. They were down with it. They thought, you know, this is the system. Uh, this is what we've got. Some of them thought, actually, it's pretty good. You know, I, I have a pretty good life. 
that is a stipulation going in. Beyond that, there's a lot of variety as to how you deal with enslaved blacks and how you deal with free blacks. You don't propose that they be given the right to vote. You don't propose that they be sitting on the county court, but you might do business with them. You might sit in church with them. Uh, you might sit down at table with them even. So that's, that's what I mean by, by the way despotism works. And the, way it could wor- the reason it could work that, this way here is that free blacks on a local level did not, were not seen as constituting a threat, except when you get something like the Nat Turner Rebellion. All of a sudden, white people are freaking out because the, this, this group of enslaved people in uh, Southampton County, Virginia, staged a, a revolt in 1831. And people as, as, as far west as the mountains are huddling in their houses, white people, and, and feeling, oh, God, the Negroes are coming. And this idea that maybe free blacks are involved in it suddenly takes on for some people a new credibility. What you get in Prince Edward County is that there are some in the county who say, oh, my God, we got to clamp down on the free blacks right away. And there are others who are thinking, eh, maybe not. No, nothing's, nothing important's happening here. The slaves are quiet here. Let's leave well enough alone. So it's really an argument among whites. Do we, do we smash the free blacks now? Or do we leave them alone? What ends up happening is that one guy in the county court pushed through a measure to confiscate the uh, whatever weapons that free blacks in the county might own. And the, the uh, constable or whoever is in charge of enforcing this basically just doesn't get up off his bottom and do anything about it until he's forced to do it. Goes out and uh, he doesn't collect the guns. The free blacks apparently gave them to one of their uh, white neighbors uh, whom, whom they trusted. And the county court, which is the governing body of the county, Having ordered the confiscation, ever scrupulous, decides they'll take the confiscated weapons, auction them off, and take the proceeds and pay the free blacks compensation for having lost their their guns. And it's not long after that before you see free blacks owning guns again. There's a myth that free blacks couldn't own guns in the Old South. Not true. So what what I'm depicting here is a system that's not fair. But it's also not one in which most white people most of the time think of free blacks as a mortal threat. Okay. Um, You have several great examples in your book, more of that, the difference between law on the books and law in action, sort of the, there's a law here, but the community isn't necessarily going to enforce it. Um, and, and you call this the, the relationship between politics, law, and actual behavior. And you just mentioned this a little bit, but I don't know if you want to go into more detail about the white citizen's habit of placing the abstractory black problem in a mental realm separate from the one inhabited by his or her own Afro-Virginian acquaintances. Well, I, I will say a little more about that, and, and thank you for mentioning politics, because that's the, that's the piece that I've, I've left out of this. Now, we haven't really talked about why the uh, free blacks of Israel Hill were set free in the first place, and that, that gets a bit to politics and even to philosophy and worldviews. These people, the idea of freeing them was the idea of one Richard Randolph, who was uh, a young, wealthy planter, who 
Well, he was already kind of famous because he had been accused a few years before he wrote his will of having impregnated his wife's sister and uh, and and having killed her her uh, newborn child, which, by the way, uh, appears not to not to have been true. But he was sort of the um, you know the National Enquirer cover boy of of, of 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 his day already. Now, I think that has nothing to do with the fact that he wrote this will. Which is, it's really a, an abolitionist diatribe. Can I read you one sentence of the will? Oh, read you as much as you want, yeah. Well, the sentences back then were long sentences, so okay. one sentence as much as I want. Okay. He, he, this is really an abolitionist tract. He writes, With an indignation too great for utterance at the tyrants of the earth, from the throned despot of a whole nation to the more despicable, but not less infamous petty tormentor of single wretched slaves whose torture constitutes his wealth and enjoyment. I do hereby declare that it is my will and desire, nay, most anxious wish, that my Negroes, all of them, be liberated. I thus yield up to them their liberty, basely wrested from them by my forefathers, and beg, humbly beg, he underscores humbly, beg their forgiveness for the manifold injuries I have too often inhumanly, unjustly, and mercilessly inflicted on them. This guy, I mean, this politics doesn't cover it. I mean, his his worldview is the view of the French Revolution. I mean, he was a great devotee of the French Revolution. He had been a student of George Wythe, who is a now, except in Virginia, forgotten figure, who was the mentor of Thomas Jefferson to College of William and Mary. And uh, Randolph was the stepson of a fellow named St. George Tucker, who was the most important jurist in Virginia in the, uh, the first part of the 19th century. All three of these men not only thought that slavery was a moral wrong, I mean, even Jefferson thought that, though it didn't stop him from, I mean, it didn't impel him to free any slaves. These three guys, Tucker, Wythe, and Randolph, not only thought that slavery was wrong, but they, they believed that the races were equally endowed. They believed in racial equality. This is in the 1790s. And so Randolph, Richard, if he could have done it, would have emancipated every slave. And he also rejected the idea that if you emancipate slaves, you've got to ship them off to Africa or send them west to the Mississippi. That's why he left land of his own for them to settle on or called on his wife to do so, which she eventually did. Now, that kind of politics or worldview never disappeared from antebellum Virginia, uh, but it pretty much went underground for a lot of reasons. It became politically untenable to espouse those kinds of views. What was politically viable, among other things, was to pass all these laws. It, there's a, a steady accretion of new laws it, it, really uh, humiliating free blacks as much as anything else and imposing concrete restrictions on the way they live. Why do they need all these laws? It's partly because so many whites are dealing so uh, amicably with free blacks that the hardliners keep thinking that we need more laws. When, why do you keep passing laws? Why do you keep piling on laws? And I can think of several reasons why laws uh, would be passed. Uh, laws of that sort and that abundance would be passed. One is because uh, the laws are consistent with the dominant racial philosophy of the time, the racial outlook at the time, which is that most most white people thought that slavery was at least acceptable. 
maybe even desirable, uh, partly for just spontaneous reasons and partly to justify slavery. A lot of whites believed or wanted to believe that whites are inherently superior to blacks. That could generate laws like that. Also, uh, the occasional panic, such as the Nat Turner uh, 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 panic, could uh, could and did stimulate the passage of laws like this. Uh, but uh, another reason for this kind of law, in my view, is that the more hardline whites were worried about the conduct of the more flexible whites. And this, by the way, applies to slavery as well. There were uh, pro-slavery propagandists and, and just just ordinary sort of uh, 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 planter commentators who who were constantly vexed by the way their fellow planters were were letting slaves roam around at night at will. They weren't uh, writing passes. They were letting slaves engage in act, uh, in economic activity on their own. So you got all of these diatribes about enslaved and free blacks and laws passed partly because of the conduct of white people more than the conduct of blacks. And finally, when you think about it, I don't think there was ever a white politician in the South who thought he could gain votes by standing up for free blacks. He, he might get along perfectly well with his free black neighbors, but you're not going to win votes by, by setting yourself up as a bulwark uh, against repressive laws or as much less as an advocate of racial equality, whereas you could gain votes from the hardliners by voting for the 113th anti-free black law that added perhaps a little to what was already there and which you figured probably isn't going to be indifferently enforced anyway. So the whole politics of the time facilitated the passage of more and more anti-free black laws. Now, that doesn't mean the laws meant nothing. It just means that they meant uh, meant less than we uh, uh, we tend to think uh, that they uh, that they did mean. It's also true that when you get into the 1850s, there's a especially the end of the 1850s as the North South conflict is heating up. You get even more anti-free black laws. Let's remember too that that the laws and the anti-free black propaganda had a subtext, and the subtext is slavery is good. Slavery is good not only for those who make money off it, but supposedly it's good for the African because it brings him out of a so-called barbarous country and civilizes him or her up to the degree to which he's capable. And if you take that racist point of view, then free blacks are a problem for you because if liberated blacks can make a go of it, if they can prosper economically, if they carry themselves uh, with, with, with pride and assertiveness, then your whole theory of slavery is wrong. So part of the venom that's, that some direct against free blacks is, is done by, by way of justifying the existence of slavery. Having said that, if you're a free black in that society, one of the oppressions that you face is to have to listen to this crap all. You know, what, what these propagandists are saying about you cannot have been uh, anything but a, a, a huge detractor from your quality of life. Could you spend some time talking about your sources and interpretations, especially your heavy reliance on county court papers? Well... I'm, I relied heavily on county court papers mainly because that's what's there, and it's and in the in this particular part of Virginia, they're there in abundance. So we need to say again here that the county court uh, 
was a, a court in which trials and certain kinds of cases were conducted and, and, and the like, but it, it was also and perhaps mainly the governing body of the county. So every official thing that's done in the county goes through the county court, and there's a record of a lot of that stuff. Now, that's that's already interesting in its own right. But then when you look at, uh, at records of, of, of civil suits, now there was, there was a, a, a judicial uh, a system that goes beyond the county court. There was, of course, an, an abundance of civil lawsuits. And here you get all kinds of uh, testimony of a type that people wouldn't have recorded any other way. Let's say a lawsuit is filed. You have two litigants. One of them, perhaps in his in his complaint, perhaps tells us almost his life story. I mean, the whole background to the dispute, which may go back 10, 20, 30 years. And the, uh, the answer from the defendant gives that person's side of the story for the last 1, 10, 20, or 30 years. Sometimes, uh, you know, there, there are affidavits, there are depositions, there may be personal letters. Uh, submitted in evidence. There may be uh, commercial records submitted in evidence. So a lot of the sorts of records that people generated and otherwise wouldn't have kept are preserved in the county court records. And there's just carton upon carton upon carton of records of this type. Now, if I may, I'll, I'll give you an example or two of how court records can illuminate social reality. So, uh, the first example is a very direct one. One of the enslaved people whom the Randolphs liberated was a guy named Syfax Brown, and he had been the personal servant of Richard Randolph. And some people have the stereotype that the, the house slave, the personal servant, was the least likely to be assertive. But Syfax Brown, when he became free, was essentially the opposite of that. The example that comes out of the court records is a lawsuit. In 1809, uh, Syfax Brown, the free black man, had a herd of hogs, and his hogs wandered onto the uh, land of a white neighbor, and I guess were eating some of the crops, and the white neighbor shot at least some of Syfax Brown's hogs, may be calculating that, well, this is a black guy. He won't be able to do anything about it. Well, Syfax Brown, the former body servant, was having none of it. He went to court, filed a suit, and uh, recovered uh, uh, pretty handsome damages for the, uh, for the hogs that he had lost. This is 1809. And... Uh, so it's early in the history that I'm describing, that I'm, I'm delineating, but already you have this, uh, this free black man standing up for his, whites and the, his rights and the court vindicating that. Now, that's a vivid and straightforward example. But let's jump up uh, half a century, uh, 40 years anyway. In 1859, I think it was, there was a coroner's inquest over the dead body that, of, of a, an enslaved man that had been found. And the way the coroner worked back then is in the first place, he wasn't a medical practitioner usually. He was just a guy who, who got a, an appointment as coroner. And he had to assemble a jury of 12 citizens. And they'd all go and look at the body and, you know, stick their fingers into it and turn it over and, and uh, decide what they thought that it uh, thought it happened. They, they look at the body of this slave named Robin, and they find that his back is lacerated by repeated beatings and his, his buttocks have been paddled. 
there's a hole in the side of his head. It's it's clear, and they and they they say outright this this man has been physically abused. But they the coroner's jury was not prepared to return a finding of homicide, and the reason they give is very offhanded, uh, and. Matter of fact, and and sometimes the offhanded evidence is the most interesting. Is a couple of the coroner's juries jurors say, "I have seen many Negroes worse whipped than I thought Robin had been, and they are still living." Well, now this person wasn't trying to make an ideological point; he was trying to justify why he was not prepared to return a finding of homicide. But when my students ask me, was was physical punishment? common in the old South of slaves, and how severe was it? All I have to do is quote them that. You have these coroner's jurors just saying, well, you know, we all, you know, we see plenty of black guys repeat a horse and this. They're still living. There's, there's a chunk of social history encapsulated in a sentence or two of a, of a kind that you don't necessarily get anyplace else. And you wouldn't think of that as something that would come out of court records, but that's in fact where it's filed because the coroner's reports, inquisitions got filed as everything else in an official way, generated in an official way, got filed in the county records and there they are. Well, that is that is quite a trove of findings within um, in an unexpected place, perhaps. Um, could you can, talk- I, can I just add that, that, yeah. that there, there's a, there are historians who have said, and including in reviews of my book, the court records are all but useless in writing the history of slavery because most infractions committed by slaves or alleged against slaves were dealt with on the plantation. They never made their way into the court. But the fact is that slaves were tried in, in courts reasonably often, first of all. And second, when you get litigation uh, among whites – What's it going to be about? Usually it's about property. What were the two main forms of property in the Old South? Land and slaves. So you have people litigating over slaves all the time. And in their uh, submissions to the court, they're talking about these people, what their personalities are, their names, how, how they behaved, how they were treated. Now, all of this is through the eyes of uh, the person who's, who's uh, uh, sub- submitting the document. But you can... You can triangulate an awful lot about the history of slavery from court documents, and that's before you get to the fact that every time a planter went bankrupt and his his goods were auctioned off by the sheriff, that generates a record in the county court. I found a, a, a record of a, a sheriff's auction of slaves of insolvent masters in one Virginia courthouse in two days in the 1840s, in which 120 black human beings were sold for the, quote, crime, unquote, of their masters having gone insolvent. They were scattered to the four winds, and the document that was generated says, very casually, that most of them were boys and girls. There you have slavery as it was, in the most vivid sense, generated in a completely impersonal legal document. So that's how I, that's how the sources can be used and that's how I tried to use them. That is that's great. Um, could you talk a little bit more about another legal document as a source wills? You mentioned um, Richard Randolph's will and read a sentence from it too, but 
I think you mentioned some other people's wills in your book, including George Washington, who I know has a very interesting will and talks about his feelings about slavery as well. Yeah, well, Washington, uh, is, that's not a case I've studied minutely, but Washington was another uh, uh, person who uh, not only thought that slavery was morally uh, not justifiable, but presided, uh, but uh, provided in his will that his his people were to go uh, to go free and uh, to receive a certain amount of help establishing themselves. Now he said they were to go free when his widow Martha should die, but I think Martha decided that uh, she was not comfortable living in a world where several hundred people had an active interest in her death. So she, uh, she let them uh, go while she was still alive, and, and they did receive a certain amount of help. Now, this uh, Washington's will and Richard Randolph's will are, are a category of will that specifically addresses the issue of slavery and in Richard's case, even the issue of race, because he was a racial egalitarian. And in the, the late 1700s, the early 1800s, you'll get a sprinkling of wills like this. Somebody will, will say, I want to manumit my slaves because uh, holding slaves uh, uh, violates the, the teachings of Christ. Or I want, to, I want to free my slaves because holding slaves violates the eternal truth that all men are created equal. Or some will say, I want to free this slave and this slave and this slave because they're such wonderful people and they've, ser- they've served me so well. Or you'll even, you'll even see, for example, a woman who says, I want my slave, whom she then names, uh, to be sold, but then I want the proceeds given to her for her own use, <laughs> which turns out to be illegal. Uh, but but it, it just shows you this almost crazy uh, permutations of what, people would do who had qualms about slavery. Now you get up into the 19th century, you see fewer and fewer wills of, of that type. But even in the 1850s, I mean, there's, there's one very large uh, manumission by will in Prince Edward County where not only are the uh, enslaved people freed, but uh, each one of them is given a, a certain sum in gold to finance their resettlement and, in uh, Liberia. So that's one kind of thing you can see in a will. The other is the kind of will that's written by somebody who evinces no sort of deep thinking about slavery at all, who seems completely to accept the institution, and who will say, for example, well, I want this uh, uh, such and such a slave to go to my nephew, a slave, let's say, who's 12 years old. You know, my nephew is, is about 12 years old and he needs his own slave. <laughs> so you take this 12-year-old away from his or her mother. That's not stated, but it's quite obvious because your nephew is old enough to where he needs somebody to attend uh, to him. Or you say, I want this slave to go here, that slave to go there. And Billy, because of his refractory conduct, I want him sold to Mississippi or something like that. So even here, here again, these sort of casual, offhanded dispensations can tell as much about slavery as the wills that in, in which somebody very self-consciously and uh, 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 bears his or her soul. Well, you certainly uh, gave a very vibrant tale of the community on Israel Hill by drawing through these court records and. Um, it's, it's good as someone with a law degree to see how much can be drawn in future, in the history of our future from legal records. 
Uh, I think we've taken a lot of your time. So to conclude, I'd love to know what you're working on now. Well, what I'm working on now, I, it, basically everything I do has has to do with this the same thing, which is, is uh, oppressive societies and, and how they work. I've done most of my work on, on the American South. And what I'm doing now uh, is uh, looking again at, at this, this little part of Virginia, but considering the ways that whites interacted with enslaved blacks, not free blacks, because after all, 95% of the blacks out there were enslaved, 90%. And so you have the the sort of well-documented, much-considered relations between masters and slaves, overseers and slaves, but also whites who didn't own any slaves at all were interacting with slaves all the time. Sometimes this would take the form of, of, of a physical assault. Sometimes it would take the, the form, the opposite form of a, of, of a loving relationship between a a man of one race and a woman of the other race, in either direction, black man, white woman, white, even white woman, black man, although that was harder to, harder to pull off. Uh, um, socializing, uh, you, you, get the, you get the most blatant sorts of cruelty and abuse, and you also get the, the most intimate forms of contact. So I'm trying to do for the relationships between whites and enslaved blacks Something like what I did in Israel on the Appomattox for the relations between uh, between whites and free blacks, and it also, at least as a teaching field, being interested as I am in oppression, I've become more and more interested in World War II, especially the European experience. And I'm interested in oppression and the way people, the oppressed, respond to it, whether that be by uh, adaptation, accommodation. Uh, resist outright resistance, collaboration, and I'm interested as always in the ways that both individual oppressors and the individual oppressed depart from the script that society has written for them. That's where I'm I'm, I'm going in 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 my work and uh, in life, if you want to say. Okay, well, those sound like. Great projects, and uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I really want to thank you for being on the show today. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you. 